0: Hi again, I'm Jack Lesenberry, and welcome, or welcome back, to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. For many years, I wrote a nationally award-winning column, Politics and Prejudices, for the Detroit Metro-Times, and did radio essays on public and commercial radio. But now it's a new era, and we're trying something new on what, for me, is a fairly new format. I was thinking it might be time to phase out my 8-track player as well, but can only do these things gradually. By the way, I'm still doing a lot of writing, and you can view some of my work and listen to past and new essays and podcasts on my website and at lessonberryinc.com. It's ink as an ink pen. I've been around for a while, covered stories in 40 countries and many states, and met a lot of fascinating people, and what I like doing on this podcast is bringing some of them and their stories to you, plus giving my unique and sometimes snarky take on things, old analog man that I am. By the way, I also plan to end most of these podcasts with my signature essays, so please settle in and listen. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and also please follow me on my blog, lessonberryinc.com. I also would love to hear from you in terms of a message on Facebook or to my blog, and now for today's story. Hard to believe now, but when we baby boomers were young, even when I started college, China was of little importance to the world economy and had no relationship whatsoever with the United States. It was a closed society ruled by Maoist fanatics and what they called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. But today, it's the world's second greatest economic superpower. General Motors sells nearly half of all its vehicles in China, and they're essential to our economy. And yet, President Trump has decided to engage in a herring and confusing, off-again, on-again trade and tariff war with China. He claims this is hurting the Chinese consumer, not the Americans. But is that true? A number of major studies indicate exactly the opposite. Nobody thinks China's perfect. They have a long record of human rights abuses and intellectual property theft. But is this the best and most strategic way we should be dealing with a country that many think will soon have the world's biggest economy? And what are the repercussions going to be for Michigan, especially the auto industry? Joining me in the studio to talk about all these things is the man who's passionate about China, lives there most of the time these days, and has also held a number of key positions in Michigan, Tom Watkins, a former Michigan State superintendent of schools, and most recently, head of the Detroit Wayne Mental Health Authority. These days, he's devoting most of his time to building both original, educational pardon me, and and business ties between Michigan and China, which I think could possibly, in the long run, turn out to be the most important job he's had. Tom, thanks for making time for us today.
1: It's great to be with you. Thank you, Jack. And
0: also joining us by phone for a few minutes is Bernard Swakey, who's director of the Automotive Communities Partnership at the Ann Arbor-based Center for Automotive Research, known as CAR. He's also co-author of an important report issued earlier this year that outlined the devastating impact of a trade and tariff war uh, with China on the American economy. Mr. Sawicki, thanks for joining us for a few moments today. Um, let's start with you, because I know you've got to get back to work. Last week, I was reading the report, rereading a report, ra- rather, and talking to Christian Dechek from your office about it. Apparently, you folks found that this would have, these tariffs will have a devastating impact on the automotive industry and the price of cars and on jobs in this country. Is that correct? Uh,
2: yes, absolutely. And You know, it's interesting, as an automotive analyst, trade is that one issue where you don't really want to just look at an apples-to-apples comparison. Um, The implications of what we do on trade on one particular industry often come out as consequences in other industries. And so, in this case, I'm referring to, for example, we ratchet up automotive tariffs on China, and they respond with something in agriculture. Uh, Soybeans are a common example. Uh, So the economy-wide implications are what we really need to be looking at here. And that really increases the complexity of understanding the full dynamic of some of our actions.
0: And we sometimes forget agriculture is the second biggest uh, part of the Michigan economy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, between the bad weather that we've had, um, a lot of crops either could not be planted or had to be planted very late. We don't have the same yields as we normally would. Uh, Hmm. So those are things that are outside of a political control mechanism, uh, but altogether we have uh, substantial amounts of farm bankruptcies happening. And, you know, given that this is all happening in a robust economy, uh, it's actually quite unfortunate because it appears to have been quite avoidable.
0: Well, Tom, jump in here if, if you have something uh, to contribute. But Do I remember correctly, didn't China back off imposing new tariffs on soybeans last week?
1: Yeah, there has been this kind of tit-for-tat and uh, retreat and, and, and pushing forward. Uh, but as Bernard just pointed out, uh, whether China is going to go to other markets to get their soybeans and other agricultural products, and so this could not only have a short-term effect, uh, but if they start to buy soybeans from Brazil, there's no guarantee, even when this trade war well, is over, that they're going to come back uh, to the Michigan far farmers, the Iowa farmers, the Minnesota farmers. So this could have long-lasting repercussions, not only in the auto industry. Uh, but for farmers and to the American consumer. Uh, As you pointed out, Jack, this is not hurting China as much as it's hurting the American consumer. It's pointed out that uh, the trade war is costing the average consumer about $1,000 more out of their Mm. pocket, a tax on the average person uh, in order to buy goods um, that they would may buy to uh, go back to school.
0: Um, Bernard Swicki, what would the what is the cost going to be? The auto industry. How is the auto industry going to be impacted by these tariffs?
2: Well, it all depends on duration. And I have to tell you, when we talk to companies, what we're hearing is all of their actions right now essentially are contingency plans. Uh, because you know, let's say from the time that you decide to adjust automotive capacity, it's a very slow process. You know, if you want to add a plant anywhere in any country. You know, it takes months just to work out a land acquisition, months to get the permits. Um, you know, then you have the construction phase. And even once it's all complete, you need the tooling to go in. You have pre-start, you know, and so on. So we're talking years. Mm. And so companies are right now very hesitant to make these investments that, one, take years to actually come out and start producing. Two, take maybe a decade to return an actual return on investment. You know, for a trade action that could be in place for a few months. Tom, and is and it so
0: true? Right now, I, excuse uh, me. I'm sorry. Tom, is it true that China thinks in the long term more than we do?
1: Clearly, they they do, Jack. And and the point that I think Bernard has pointed out is is that these are decisions, and and business is looking for certainty. And when there's this level of uncertainty, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, when the president is talking about uh, forcing American business to shut right. down their plants in in, in China. Um it sends reverberations uh, across the world. Uh, Vietnam is uh, now seeing land costs go up as wow. corporations are taking a look at uh, moving their plants uh, too. And so the point is is that for somebody that thinks that uh, we're going to thump our chest and the American companies are going to return all these jobs to the United States, uh, they're smoking something. Uh, that's not going to happen. Where they're going to do is move. Uh, to perhaps to other places in Southeast Asia.
0: Mr. Swanker, would you would you agree with that?
2: Oh, absolutely, and we're actually seeing it in the numbers. So, for example, we've done uh, trade analyses of certain automotive components uh, in response to uh, some of these different tranches of tariffs that we've put in place. Mm. And so, for example, what we have found is for the most part, yes, imports from China of those goods decrease. But at the same time, imports from other countries, particularly Mexico, also increased. So from the point of view of the American economy, we bear the full brunt of the repercussions of the response that China directs against us. But much of the benefit of these tariffs limiting Chinese exports went to other countries who increased their exports to the U.S. So we're really just pulling these goods from another country.
0: um What would happen to General Motors without its business in China?
2: Well, you know, General Motors also, for the most part, uh, is almost 100% out of Europe. So we're talking about this enormous kind of semi-global automaker that's really dependent on two markets in particular, which is the U.S., basically North America, and China. Now that they sell more vehicles in China than here, the odds are extremely high, right? Right you would essentially uh, turn General Motors into another FCA if uh, if China went away uh, from its portfolio or if, let's say, the China uh, part of the portfolio became unprofitable.
0: Now, if you say, when you say FCA, you mean, of course, Fiat Chrysler, of course. In Correct. other words, are you saying that General Motors would not be viable or at least not vi- be viable as a standalone company without its business in China?
2: No, you, you know, I think that, you know, just as FCA is um, viable, uh, GM could, but it would be one incredibly painful contraction given that right. they have more sales in that market uh, in China than they do here. So the process of taking that away and shutting it down is one very costly uh, and it would have just these uh, tremendous repercussions on, on the company. And, then, and by uh, the way, this is, a, uh, yeah, if I
1: go ahead, sorry. I'm
2: sorry, Bernard. No, so I just wanted to make an associated point, by the way, about. Um, FCA, you know, and what they are now, which is this very North American and partially European automaker. But they were the first in China, really. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, Beijing Jeep got established in the early 80s, and it really served as the prototype for all of the other Chinese joint ventures. Uh, and, you know, I often wonder about Chrysler. Uh, and but At the time, it was just Chrysler and how different that company would be, you know, given that it was first in what is now the biggest market in the world. If they had stayed more focused on China and had reinvested and reinvested, you know, maybe Chrysler would be bigger than GM today. Maybe there would be no Fiat Chrysler or no Daimler Chrysler in the 90s, just based on what that Chinese uh, explosion could have done for that automaker. So I think it's a strong illustration of ignore China at your own peril. Now that, that they're b- the biggest market in the world, most economists expect them to exceed U.S. GDP about 2030, right? So wow. we're maybe a decade away from the U.S. being the second biggest economy in the world. Uh, so the repercussions here are potentially tremendous. And Mr. the,
1: the, ahead, the yes. expansion of China has just been mind-boggling, uh, Jack. Uh, when I first yeah, went ahead. to China in 1989, there was no such thing as private ownership of automobiles. And it's just pointed out it is now the world's largest uh, auto auto producer. Uh, Cadillac sells uh, more Cadillacs in China than they, than they do here in in North America. Uh, it used to be bicycles and Mao suits, right? And now it's uh, Maseratis and Cadillacs and Escalades and and everything else that I, that is there. I,
0: I, unbelievable! I want to come back to your story and your sort of life in China moment. But before I let you go, Mr. Swerky, if the U.S. Trade Representative were to call you tonight and ask for your policy advice, what should we be doing?
2: You know. I think what I'd recommend is this: the U.S. is doing much of this alone, and I don't think that we have the clout alone that we would, you know, if we pulled the European Union together into a more unified position, if we could pull some of of the other trading partners that China has, maybe just using the WTO, right? Right. Uh, I think that our leverage could be multiplied if we weren't doing the lone wolf strategy. Uh, so I think, to me, that's the number one modification I would make. Is look, Can we try and influence a greater chunk of the Chinese economy by combining into a consortial effort? Uh, given the entire scale, the hugeness of China, I don't right. know that any other approach has a high probability of success.
0: And finally, where can people read, the, read your report? Can you tell us the title of it and where we can find it online?
2: Uh, of course. So on the CAR website, which is cargroup.com. Uh, you can find the vast majority of our research. We're not-for-profit, so most of what we do gets disseminated uh, on our website for free. Uh, so that report and many other updates can be found right there.
0: Uh, any last words, Bernard Swicki, that people ought to keep in mind?
2: Uh, no, no, no. I think, the, to me, the, the huge discussion right now really should be about lone wolf uh, right. versus how much of a consortium we can get. Uh, And I don't think that that gets enough play. So I think if we could sort of plant that seed of maybe we can modify strategy in that direction, I think that that would be kind of a good positive takeaway for the discussion.
0: You're telling me it's not 1969 or even 1979. It's a new world.
2: Yes, sir. It's not even 1989. I think uh, these (laughs) strategies could have uh, had different outcomes in a different world. But no, absolutely. Uh, Different times. And we demand, uh, we not demand, we just need. Different
0: strategies. Amen. Bernard Swicky. thanks so much. You've been great. Have a great day.
2: Pleasure. Take care. Thank you very much. Speaking of
0: 1989, Tom Watkins, you're about the only person I know who actually was in Tiananmen Square in 1989. That, of course, was the year of the violent crackdown against the centers. But tell us just briefly about how you fell in love with China and sort of your story.
1: Uh, I grew up uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and, and I remember at that time, back in the early 60s, before we even had relations with China. I mean, China's relationship uh, with America at that time was similar to our relationship with North Korea today. And I remember... Actually, it was worse. It, I mean, it, it, w- it probably w- was, you're I mean,
0: right. The president would never go talk to Mao Zedong. We <laughs> it was the big white space <laughs> on the map. Absolutely. And,
1: and, and yet there was a fascination with it. And, and I remember a, a, a teacher in fourth grade uh, talking about it and talking about the red China, Right. And, and that's I how it's called. Regimented. And, and you know, they, if anything, the pictures I saw, they look yellow, not red. And so I was curious about why uh, this kind of derogatory response. Right. Uh, and, and they also said that uh, the, the teacher at the time uh, talked about a communism. And I, what is communism, a little 10-year-old boy would ask. And they said, well, that's when they believe everybody's equal. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, You're subversive, you. Exactly. (laughs) And then they said, in America, everybody is equal. And and my little 10-year-old mind and eyes uh, said that wasn't true. Poor people weren't treated as well as rich people. And black people certainly weren't treated in the same way as as white folks were at that time. So it was just a spark that was there. And and in 1988, uh, Governor Milliken uh, went to China early. I think it was Mrs. Milliken uh, who went. uh, And when Governor Milliken was in office... Governor uh, Blanchard came in. I worked with him as deputy campaign manager and deputy chief of staff to to Governor Blanchard. They went to China. I was, at the time, a deputy in the Department of Mental Health, uh, clamoring to go, but there was no real reason to take the mental health guy uh, to China. In 1988, we organized an international mental health conference and uh, a professor at the University of Michigan, Dr. Ken Dewaskin, really a godfather to me, of opening my eyes and, and enlighten me on on China, uh, helped uh, arrange that, that, that trip. And uh, he asked if we could uh, raise the private funds in order to bring uh, Chinese psychiatrists who had been pushed down uh, during the Cultural Revolution, right. it was bourgeois, to be practicing Western mesh, uh, medicine. Uh, they came over and he knew then what I know now, they would invite us back. And in 1989, our, I organized Using private funds, no public dollars, uh, but to organize about 30 people to go to the People's Republic of China. And it happened to be at a very, very historic time. And, you know, Jack, I'll never forget being in Tiananmen Square. And this is mid May, so it was a couple weeks before the the bloody crackdown. Uh, And it was more like a Boy Scout jamboree at that time. It was very exuberant, there was a lot of idealism and uh, being a western person in, in a sea of about a million students mainly young people mm. um, they would ask me you know why are you here and they couldn't understand why a person in late 20s early 30s could be in essence the right. uh, director of a, a of a, a major uh, department of, of, of government uh, they'd ask me if I, I had my own apartment i said i have my own home how many bedrooms four how many families live there one yeah, um, that, that, did, yeah. did right. i have a garden But the most profound thing, and it gives me chills to this day, is when the Chinese students would ask me to describe democracy, Mm. to describe freedom. Um, And a couple of weeks later, we we know what happened on June 3rd and and June 4th when the Chinese People's uh, Liberation Army turned on, on their own people.
0: Right. But but that didn't kill your fascination for China.
1: No, it didn't. And in fact, uh, six months to a day after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, I had my second trip. I thought it was going to be my one and only trip to China. Uh, now it's uh, you know dozens of trips that I've taken and uh, working to build cultural, educational, and uh, cultural ties with China. My belief is very strong that, uh, as you pointed out in, in your intro, There are real issues, and uh, the president and uh, and Democrats are are coming together and saying we need to address some of the issues around uh, theft of intellectual property and and some of the unfair trade practices. Those are real, Uh, and as our previous guest was talking about, how you go about that is really uh, the, the question, not addressing those concerns. I
0: think the cliche is you need a scalpel, not a meat ax. Uh,
1: that would be a very appropriate ethic
0: in, <laughs> in, in this, so, uh, this Yeah, discussion. I'm very curious, because you now, you're, they, you are involved, you're a partial director of an international school?
1: Yeah, what we are doing is, and, and this is so important to me, is where we can build bridges, um, taking a look at the sub-national level at the governor's, at mayor's office, at superintendents, at college presidents, building those bridges. You know, my belief is, is that a future president of the People's Republic of China is sitting in a university in America today. It's more than likely uh, that those leaders are there. So how we build those people-to-people exchanges are going to be extremely important. You know, we can sit back and and get a bunch of political rhetoric, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. The fact is, is 1.4 billion people, one-fifth of all humanity is not going to disappear. Um, They are not going to change their system of governance uh, because of what a mayor, a superintendent, a a governor, uh, and for that matter, uh, the president of this country... Uh, says that they should do,
0: and they're not going to go back to wearing Mao suits and riding bicycles. They're,
1: no, they're not. I mean, it's 1.4 billion people, and, and in some ways, I mean, people talk about them as a communist country, which they are, and a very authoritarian one. But they're more capitalistic in a number of ways than we are. I, I uh, think
0: authoritarian might be a more appropriate word than communist. I, I think
1: uh, clearly right. because uh, it's it's a market economy. Deng Xiaoping, the leader that right. followed uh, Mao Zedong had a, a a great comment when someone asked him how can you you know all this market and this capitalism against communism and socialism and his response is i don't care if it's a, the cat is white or the cat is black as long as the cat can catch the mice and yep. so they've been following uh, really uh, really a, a capitalistic market uh, approach
0: a little anecdote, Governor Milliken told me once that he went over, as you mentioned, and met with Deng Xiaoping when China started to change. He said every so often during a conversation, Deng Xiaoping would, would lean over and spit tobacco into a spittoon <laughs> at his feet, which kind of unnerved Milliken a little bit, but uh, they're different, different cultures. Now, you're there now. You you're, you don't have fluent Chinese, but you have some Chinese, yes. and a lot of Chinese can speak, Ameri- can speak American, can speak English. Um how do they feel about what's going on? How do they feel about Donald Trump? You told me a fascinating anecdote before about
1: that. Well, you know, it, it was uh, that uh, the story that I share with you is in a small town outside of Nanjing, which is one of the ancient capitals of China. Small city, which probably most people, most of your listeners never heard of. And yet it's a city of over 10 million people, Nanjing. Wow. Um, and, More uh, people than live in the state of Michigan. Exactly. And, 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 you know, to put things in perspective, Shanghai is between 25 and 30 million people. So imagine mm. everybody in the state of Michigan times three living in the borders of the city wow. of Detroit. Show you the level of uh, of density in 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 China. And there's probably over 100 uh, cities in China with more than a million people. And the city of Detroit is probably pushing 600,000. Right, would be considered a tier three city yep. um, in in the People's Republic of China. Uh, clearly, the, there's no monolithic uh, view in, in, in China with 1.4 billion people. Uh, but the Chinese government has the ability to ratchet up uh, the rhetoric very, very easy um, because it's state-controlled media. As an example, I'll never forget: is when I was state superintendent and I was signing a um, an agreement with uh, my counterpart in Tianjin, a city just north of Beijing, again a city of about 10 million folks. And it was just this opulent uh, celebration of signing the, the documents and uh, all the TV and radio and, and uh, other media was there. And I said, this is such a lovely uh, celebration. I said, I would hope that I could have such a uh, strong showing of the media and the interest that your country is showing of signing this agreement between the state of Michigan and the city of Tianjin. And he laughed. He spoke perfect English. And he laughed and he said, Tom, I ordered them to be here. <laughs> I don't think you have that same ability in, in, in Michigan to order the media. And he said uh, with a chuckle, Would you like to know what the story is going to say tomorrow? <laughs> so uh, clearly it's a, it's a different system.
0: I, I, I think so. But you know, 30 years ago, it's been 30 years, a little more now since Tiananmen Square, we thought the pressure for democracy would gradually increase. Is there any sign of that?
1: You know, it's it's one of the things that people have been saying. Real Chinese expert is that is the Chinese economy, the Chinese economy opened up, and and uh, more f- uh, people flooded into to China, that you would see greater freedom, democracy, and and moving more and more towards our system of government. And I and I think that uh, people were just uh, hoping and wishing that uh, China uh, has very strong. Uh, history, I mean, of 5,000 years of civilization. October 1st will be the 70th anniversary of the founding of the modern Republic. China, the People's Republic of China. Um, and so they're not going to, to go back. And so I think that uh, there's been a lot of hope and prayer. Clearly, things have changed markedly uh, from where I entered China 30-plus years ago. Um, and you'll continue to see that change. But uh, I don't think that you're going to see uh, the Chinese government uh, giving up its uh, authoritarian control and moving away from its uh, communist doctrine.
0: And we assume, of course, that people want what we want, and that uh, public pressure is, is going to want New England town democracy. But I gather that's not the case. Well,
1: right? it's 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 certainly not. And then what has happened with the chaos that uh, began uh, with the uh, the recession, the greatest recession since the Great Depression, what in the mid. 2000s, 2000, 2008, I believe it was, yep. um, and the chaos that they're seeing even now under our current president, they they, they look at that, and in fact, the Chinese <laughs> government points to it and says,
0: "Is that what you want? Do you really want that, <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, or do you want uh, continued economic mm. growth?" What has really transpired over in the 30 plus years that I've gone to China is, is a trade-off uh, between the Chinese government uh, and the Chinese people, and the Chinese government to, continues to open up the market. Uh, the lives have considerably improved. Over 700 million people have yeah, moved yeah. from abject poverty what? to the equivalent of the middle class over the last 40 years. Went,
0: I think you pointed out a story to me that they went from something like in the midnight, early 1990s, 60% of people were still basically almost the starvation level, and now it's less than 1%.
1: Exactly. and And that is something that has never happened in the Mm -hmm. history of the world. It's it's also the biggest country, hundreds of millions
0: of people becoming far more prosperous.
1: And you take a look at at our country where we're seeing more and more of the American people. And it's something that quite honestly is a tragedy here in the state of Michigan and across America where children are growing up living in poverty. And the richest country of the world we're being beaten um, on a very, very important indicator and that's child poverty. Um, by Communist China.
0: Now, of course, uh, we we don't want to give the illusion that Communist China is, in fact, a paradise. They do have, first of all, they have tremendous pollution problems.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I sit down every time I'm in China and we're having a beautiful banquet and I look over at the various seafood that's there, Mm -hmm. I'm reminded that I haven't seen a body of water yet that I would particularly want to eat anything from. Right. Um, So clearly, uh, environmental degradation uh, the issue of human rights as you pointed out
0: uh, there are a lot of minorities who have the uh, uyghurs for example
1: yeah there's over 55 different minority groups uh, 95 92 to 95 percent of the people in china are han han mm-hmm. nationality uh, but there are other uh, groups uyghurs which are muslim chinese and look more turkish mm-hmm. uh, looking in terms of their features
0: of 1.4 billion people is a lot of people.
1: It is a lot of people. A lot of people uh, in China. There are other minority groups. And this is a group. And I think uh, the world has gotten moral laryngitis uh, as China has gotten stronger economically. Because today in China, uh, the Uyghurs are being persecuted.
0: They're spelled, I think, U I G H U R. Yeah.
1: And then there's, I I love the city in in northwest China, in Xinjiang province. It's called Wulumuchi. And I love to... Common to, spelling of <laughs> world <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but when I... when I And I've been in that uh, part of, the, of China a few times, and it, it truly is a police state today. Right. You can't walk 15 uh, yards without seeing three police officers back-to-back wow. uh, um, with uh, ubiquitous uh, Chinese surveillance that, that is constantly there. Uh, in the three or four days that I was there, I've stopped at, a, at probably two dozen uh, different police check points, my uh, facial scanning, uh, mm-hmm. facial recognition, passport, and, and phone oftentimes looked at. And so clearly uh, that, that is an issue that China is going to need to, adju- to address. Um, but the China's minority problem really is going to become a world problem. You cannot lock up a million people in what they refer to as the re-education camp and not have uh, some repercussions from that. So the question is, very few people uh, have heard of the Uyghurs. Um, right. But I think the world will hear more about that uh, problem as we go forward. How
0: do Chinese people regard Americans these days?
1: I think uh, for the most part, uh, the Chinese people are, are very close to the American people. They, uh, we share a lot, I think, uh, in common about what, uh, what we want for our, for our families. Um, but I worry because China has the ability through uh, its uh, nationalism to turn it up uh, or to turn it down and uh, as we continue to have uh, this rhetoric uh, you know what is it uh, was it tip O'Neill that said all politics is local exactly uh, and so in, in China uh, Xi Jinping uh, isn't going to be viewed as, as the problem um, that uh, that problem is going to be pointed that uh, finger at us and right. uh, so if we have to become the boogeyman uh, for China's problems um, that can be ratcheted Do they see us as the boogeyman,
0: or President Trump as the boogeyman?
1: Oftentimes, that it's uh, indistinguishable be- right. between it. Uh, I watched it when there was a problem uh, between China and Japan, uh, where Japanese cars were being uh, damaged uh, right. by Chinese citizens, and uh, and it can go very quickly. I mean, for instance, the uh, troubles we've had with Huawei, which there is their Apple um, right. computer um, and, and phones. Uh, that all of a sudden a uh, number of Chinese were getting rid of their Apple phone and mm-hmm. showing their nationalistic pride by uh, getting rid of the Apple and buying a Huawei. Wow. And so it can have economic repercussions very, very quickly.
0: One other, one other thing is that years ago, we thought in terms of conflict between China, People's Republic of China, and Taiwan, who was, used to be our client state, and mm-hmm. we sort of dumped them. Is anything going to happen there? Are they uh, content to sort of coexist? Uh, un- unhappily?
1: Well, it's uh, it's very interesting right now because what is happening in, in Hong Kong, I think we're going on, uh, I think it's the fourth month of protest uh, there that the right. protest started off uh, about an extradition bill that would make it easier uh, for the Chinese government to uh, extradite. Uh, Just to people. refresh
0: our memory, Hong Kong, of course, was a British protectorate for many years. It then reverted back to China about nineteen ninety seven. 1997. 1997.
1: Uh, and it was a 50-year contract where it would be uh, one country, two systems. Right. And uh, so we're into that, but the Hong Kong people are seeing that those freedoms that were supposed to be protected under this agreement to phase in, and as you pointed out before, the Chinese tend to have a longer view of the world that we in the West right. do. Um, but they've begun to, uh, to, to react to that. And so what started off as a protest over a bill to uh, extradite to people that were wanted for some criminal activity and they've even backed off on that, now has expanded, and it's gone into the third or fourth month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of worry that, uh, that uh, how that situation is handled in Hong Kong could uh, spill over into, uh, into Taiwan. And so uh, they're really in a, between a rock and a hard place as they try to accommodate the demands and try to get things back in order in Hong Kong, which is a major economic driver. Uh, for that part of the world and certainly for China.
0: It's a, main, it's a main profit center for China. You've got this tiny area of, I think it's about less than half the size of Oakland County with seven and a half million people. And it's one of the capitalist hubs of the world, right?
1: Absolutely. And a beautiful place. I was just there a few weeks ago. And and uh, there's a lot of turmoil. In fact, uh, it's hurting the, the Hong Kong economy uh, because tourists are, are turning away and other people. And it's one of the major financial centers of the world, with New York right. and, uh, and London and certainly Hong Kong and, and Singapore. So it's, it, it really could have some serious repercussions, not only on the short term and the long term, and uh, what China does for Hong Kong. Um, the Taiwanese mm. uh, are, are certainly going to be looking at that. Mm.
0: Finally, what do you think our policy should be? What should be, would be a rational policy of engaging China in a way that made sense for both countries?
1: Well, I think that we do need to address uh, the issues of fair uh, trade. I think that we need to stand up for our values without uh, kind of enforcing and pushing them on an independent uh, country uh, like, like China. I think that it would make more sense, as a prior guest said, to not go it alone. We should have engaged and involved our allies um, in this uh, tussle, this trade war, if you will, with China. That would have made a lot more sense. Um, than what we are doing today. At the end of the day, China's not going away, nor are we. China will continue to rise. I mean, for somehow or another to think that that should come as a surprise is is pretty naive, I think, on our part. There is no God-given right for us, as Americans, to remain number one. Uh, If you look back in history, China had the world's largest economy, 17 out of the previous 21 centuries. Um, And so that's going to be the the issue, I think, that it's there. Um, That it's just a reality going forward. They're going to continue to grow. The question in my mind is how do we assure that China's rise doesn't come at our demise? And just pointing out uh, China's cheating or China's a problem is absolutely ridiculous. What we should be doing as Michiganians and certainly as Americans is investing in education, uh, technology, infrastructure, uh, research, development, and uh, and technology. That is an offensive plan that we can do. Clearly, we can uh, point out the problems and we can fight with China around uh, unfair trade and intellectual property. But at the end of the day, when we invest in ourselves that is really going to be the strategy that's going to keep us number one going forward.
0: I think sometimes that uh, we're stopping from a worldview shaped uh, by the conditions when you and I were kids in the 50s and 60s, that at that point you had uh, much of the industrial world was still devastated from World War II, you had the developing world, and then you had the immensely rich United States of America. It was only a matter of time before the rest of the world started catching up. And, and in
1: fact, uh, you know, I sometimes kiddingly said we ought to send uh, Mao Zedong a thank you letter. Because imagine if China would have got its act together in right. 1949, exactly, uh, and as opposed to having the Great Leap Forward, where they were trying to—it was a great leap g- backwards. <laughs> yeah, it was a major leap backwards in the Cultural Revolution, where the, basically the country became psychotic uh, for right. for a decade. They devastated uh, their economy. Devastated their economy. If they would have had uh, someone like uh, Deng Xiaoping, who uh, moved to the market-based economy. In the fifties, uh, right. we wouldn't have gotten a forty or fifty-year head start after no, after World right. War two and well, so we we ought to be uh, very right. thankful they didn't get their act together any here
0: Well, we well, frittered away our big lead, and it's time to,
1: <laughs> time time to have a new strategy. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true.
0: Tom Watkins, it's always a intellectual pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're headed back to China in October.
1: I hope to go back. It's a continual uh, passion of mine to build cultural, uh, educational, and economic ties between Michigan the United States and China. It's the only strategy that makes sense going forward. Amen.
0: Well, thanks for making this time for us today. I hope a lot of people are hearing you. Pay attention to these issues and hope you'll keep me
1: posted. I will certainly do that, Jack. Great.
0: By the way, I want to thank everyone who donated to help fund the production costs of this podcast, including Lonnie Jordan, a superb longtime journalist and writer who's now living in Minnesota, Tricia Vance, a former Toledo and who's now a retired editorial page editor in North Carolina. If you'd help to keep these podcasts going, if you'd like to help, rather, I'd be thrilled if you'd send a contribution to me via Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street, Plymouth, 48170, or message me on Facebook or my blog for more details. Well, that's about it for now, except for my signature essay. Also, again, please check out my blog, lessonberryinc.com. It's ink as an ink pen. Click the button and subscribe. Listen to our next episode soon. Tell your friends and feel free to send me a message. In the meantime, most off to fire up the Google on my electric typewriter and figure out our next podcast, which will be about something that'll be actually critically important again, the 21st century. This is Jack Lesenberry with Politics and Prejudices. I'll see you again soon. There's an episode of Madam Secretary, the fairly realistic Netflix series about power politics in Washington, in which China's ambassador is summoned by the U.S. Secretary of State, played by Tia Leone. The air computer systems on Air Force One have been hacked. She wants to know if China could have done it. The ambassador incredulously denies any involvement. Madam Secretary, says, in 2000, China owned only 6% of the U.S. foreign debt. Today it's more than 20%. The ambassador goes on to explain that when his country decides to take over the United States. They won't do so by military means. They won't have to. They will just assume control of their debtor. Now the show is fiction, of course, but we do own more than a, we do owe, rather more than a fifth of our entire foreign debt to China. A little over 1.2 trillion—that's trillion with a T—dollars. And beyond that, our economies are more and more intertwined. General Motors now sells 43 percent of all the cars they make in China. That includes the vast majority of Buicks, which is a big reason why Buick survived as a brand when Pontiac and Oldsmobile did not. According to Kristen Dicek, the well-informed head of industry, labor, and economics at the Center for Automotive Research, the tariffs the president has imposed or has vowed to impose on China will cost 368,000 jobs. That's American jobs, many of them in Michigan, not Chinese jobs. The tariffs would also add $2,000 to the cost of a car built in this country, nearly double that for an import. That doesn't feel much like winning whatever the president says seems to me that we're going about this all wrong and playing a game of dangerous brinkmanship. That doesn't mean that China isn't a threat to our economic interest in some ways or that we shouldn't be a hard and tough negotiator. But as Tom Watkins likes to say, China's rise doesn't have to come at our demise. That's a, there's an old, pardon me, there's an old and wrong-headed economic theory known as mercantilism that held, more or less, that for one country to do well, another has to do badly. That theory was discredited long ago, but incredibly, it seems that some people still believe it. The truth is that China has about four times as many people as we do and is the fastest-growing major economy in the world. We can't possibly ignore that, and if we try to do everything we can to hurt them, in the long run, we'll pay. That's just common sense. Watkins also likes to say that the China-U.S. relationship is the most important bilateral one in the world, that going forward, all major issues will intersect at the corner of Washington and Beijing. That's already becoming the case. We need to find a way to get along for a mutual benefit, Watkins says, I think we ignore that advice at our peril. Economically, not finding a way to live with China could even be fatal. I'm Jack Lessenberry. Thanks for listening. I hope you will be again soon.